Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Another day, another episode, another coronavirus-free episode. Have to knock on wood there because I actually found myself at home yesterday with, out of nowhere, a bit of a stuffed nose, and I always have a cough, but I noticed that I was coughing a little bit more. And I was very confused because I haven't actually gone anywhere in the last two weeks except for to the grocery store. And when I go to the grocery store, I'm fairly paranoid about it. Like, even when I see the agent, not agent, I'm making it sound like there's some sort of super secret operative. But when I see the grocery store employee wipe down the cart handle, I still like want to grab it with my own wipe. And I'm very careful, very cautious. And at this point, I think I'm better. I think I'm fine. It was just like a psychosomatic attempt at sympathy pain for all the people that are infected with coronavirus. I don't know. But regardless, I thank you very much for tuning into the show today, kicking off another week of The Andrew Lawton Show. My goodness. So is anyone else getting just completely and utterly paranoid about anyone else you see in the world? This was something I noticed on the weekend. I was out for a walk with my wife, so we were still uh, appropriately social distancing from the world. And we we were walking down this trail uh, near our place, and there was at one point another person coming the other way. And we like basically just dove into the bushes so that we wouldn't be anywhere near the other person. And then we carried on our walk. And eventually we're on a sidewalk and we're walking one way. Someone else is walking towards us. And we basically just like jump out into the road. I mean, we figured getting hit by a car was better than getting coronavirus. So uh, in some cases, it's fine because everyone's playing by the same rules. So you go, they go, and you all sort of realize that. But some people are not doing that. Some people are not doing the wide berth around you as you encounter them on the street. So in that case, I think everyone needs to be playing by the same rules. Or you just look downright rude. Uh, because I was last week. I, this is a true story, and I'll try to be as visual as I can if you're watching the video of the show. I was getting takeout from this Middle Eastern place that we absolutely love, and we always love it, but we're trying in particular as the restaurant business is really hurting to support local businesses and businesses that we know and, and like. And we were picking up a shawarma or these shawarma bowls from this one place and it was takeout so go in get it don't touch anything get out and I realized when I got to the place where they put the order together that I had forgotten to order a bag of pita bread to go with it so I had said to the guy there okay can you just throw a bag of pita uh, pita bread in and I'll pay for it on the way out because I'd already paid and, and ordered and he said yeah that's fine so he puts it in there I'm walking back to the cash register And the guy who was working the cash, who's the manager or owner, was outside of the cash area. And I said to him, oh, hey, I just need to pay for a bag of pita bread that I forgot to pay earlier. And he said, oh, no, 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 we appreciate you coming in. Just take it. And I said, oh, that's great. And then he, like, walks over to me, puts his hand on my shoulder and says, yeah, just we really appreciate you supporting us. Uh, You know, uh, you know, why don't you take it? And I was like frozen because how can I be mad at a guy that's just giving me free pita bread so if I did get sick I'm like I could have traced it back to that moment but I didn't in the days following that incident so I think I'm pretty much safe from that episode which was a bit of a scare but again no offense to the guy I get home and I like quickly take off my jacket and I'm like Lysol wiping it down 
So this is making everyone, myself included, paranoid. And it's weird because I, I'm not even that afraid of having coronavirus myself. It's that I don't want to give it to anyone else. So, uh, you know, because I, I don't want to even have to forgo the grocery shopping, which has now become like the highlight of my week, which I, I'm sure is true for other people because you get cooped up at a certain point and it's like you get excited about. So it's like I'm going to the grocery store on the other side of town just because that way I get, you know, an extra seven minutes of real world experience by just driving. there. <laughs> I So and this is another thing. I decided to get gas. Uh, even though I'm not going anywhere. And I got gas on a different day from the grocery day, so I had an excuse to <laughs> to get out the one day. This is what our lives have become now. And I don't want to make light of it in the sense that I do realize it's serious, but you also have to smile, otherwise there, there's no way you're going to survive this. So uh, in all honesty, there is some stuff I, I want to get through today that is not just about you know my own paranoia, and my own uh, shawarma close calls, uh, which is like the worst kind of cl close call to have because you never want to put a negative spin on, on a shawarma pickup trip. But on the weekend, Canada announced that it would be banning passengers with COVID-19 symptoms from boarding domestic flights and trains. Now, what I found most exceptional about this announcement is that I kind of thought we were already doing that. And then I realized, well, why the hell weren't we doing that? And this is just absolutely unconscionable. So a lot of people thought this was something we were already doing because it was something that Justin Trudeau talked about a week and a half ago, but it only applied to international flights. So if you were getting on a plane from Heathrow to Toronto and you were coughing, they'd say, ah, oh, you can't board. If you were getting on a plane from Toronto to LAX, they would say, oh, no, if you're coughing, you can't board. But if you were getting on a plane from Vancouver to Toronto, which are two hotspots of coronavirus, or you were getting on a plane from Montreal to London, Ontario, and you were hacking away, coughing, you were sweating profusely, theoretically, prior to Monday at noon, they would have to say, well, that sucks, and then let you board. So this is just a, an example, yet again, of the government doing too little too late, saying the obvious weeks after it became obvious to everyone else. And when Trudeau made this announcement on the weekend, most people were like, well, I, I thought we were already doing this. I thought, I thought we already determined this was something we needed to do. Because again, Canada is a pretty huge country. I think we know this now. The second largest by geography country in the world. So the idea that flying from, oh, I don't know, from Halifax to London, England, which I don't know if you can still do. You, or you, you could. There's a WestJet flight, which is a shorter distance than flying from, say, Halifax to Vancouver, but only one had these added measures and the other was just completely fair game. And by the way, this is from Trudeau, whose government has acknowledged in the last week that restricting interprovincial travel is not necessarily off the tables. And some provinces have done this. Some provinces have implemented some form of restriction or at the very least scrutiny for people going from one province to another. 
So look, the, the idea of denying symptomatic passengers the opportunity to get on their train or domestic flight seems pretty straightforward. And, you know, I would also say that public transit's the same sort of thing. Look, I don't like the idea of the snitch culture that we seem to see emerging here. And, you know, I've used the term snitch lines because that's ultimately what we have in a lot of these uh, cities and provinces where added restrictions have been put in place. There's, in my own city, for example, a snitch line if you suspect that someone has broken the rules about congregation, about public events, businesses and individuals that aren't following the appropriate uh, protocols or government-mandated ones. And the idea that we all just follow the rules and understand that public health is a collective concern is apparently no longer. Because that only works when people are playing by the same rule book. It's like I mentioned earlier with taking a walk down the street. If you're prepared to walk three feet one way and the other person is not prepared to walk three feet the other way to give that six foot buffer, only one person is playing by the rules and as a result, both are jeopardized. And I don't even like the word rules because I, I'm talking about a social order here. I, I don't like the idea of state mandating this, of, of state enforcement of this. But when you're talking about uh, p critical measures, public health measures, emergencies, the state has to get involved if not everyone is playing by the same rule book. There was a, a poll that came out by Innovative Research Group that I think is interesting. In households where someone has recently returned from abroad, 75% have made a trip to the grocery store, 41% have hosted guests. And you can see that breakdown on the screen here. But uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, they found uh, that 92% of respondents had someone in their household who had traveled outside of Canada in the last 14 days. And or sorry, um, 92 had not had someone, 7% had. And of those 7%, 75% had gone to a grocery store, 60% had gone to a store other than a grocery store or drugstore, 52% met up with a relative or friend, 41% had company over, and so on. And I think that a lot of people would look at these numbers and say, these people are, are selfish, they're rude, they're idiots, whatever. But I think a lot of it comes down to really poor messaging from the government in the early days of this. And I think I mentioned this a week or so ago when that woman in Quebec City was, I believe, the first person charged for violating isolation orders. And I had said that I'm convinced that a lot of the people that are breaking these rules are people that don't understand the difference between social distancing, self-isolation, and quarantine, which are three things that have in many respects been used interchangeably. And look, for starters, self-isolation self after traveling used to be what you had to do. And it was you get home and for 14 days, you basically hole up in your house, you put on Netflix, you get your deliveries dropped or your groceries dropped off and that's it. Social distancing is what I'm doing and what I suspect most people in Canada are doing, which is where you go home, you work from home, you go out for a walk maybe, but you don't see anyone that you don't live with. You only go to the grocery store or to the drugstore. Maybe you go and 
do a food takeout order or pick up coffee or something, but then you go right back home. That is not actually isolation, and I'm guilty of this too, because I've been calling it isolation colloquially, and I know in my mind what I mean, but other people listening might not. And the government used self-isolation and social distancing interchangeably to such an extent that I think people that needed to self-isolate in the sense of not leaving home, even for groceries, thought, oh yeah, it just means I have to stay isolated except for grocery shopping. And that's how you get to that 75%, where three quarters of the people that are now by law forced to be isolated were thinking that they weren't actually breaking the rules. I don't think a lot of these people knew they were being scofflaws when they said, oh yeah, I'm going to go out and, you know, hit the local Safeway. Is Safeway still around? I don't know. I'm going to go and I'm going to hit the local grocery store or head to the Depanur for my uh, Quebec listeners, or listener, I don't know if there's more than one of you, or even one, I don't know. If you're from Quebec, send me a bonjour. But I don't know if a lot of these people knew that they were breaking the rules by doing that. So I think there's been a a very poor messaging from the get-go about that, and then you throw quarantine into the mix, and with quarantine, you're talking about something else entirely, which is where we are now, the state enforcement, the state measure to say you are now prohibited from going to the grocery store if you've returned home. Doesn't matter if you're a snowbird, doesn't matter who you are, what you are, as long as you have come back from can- or from another country in the last 14 days, you have to be quarantined under the Quarantine Act enforced by a local police and health and public health officials, but authorized by the health minister, you must be locked down for 14 days. So the messaging around that, I think, has been muddled. And I, I don't think it's about blaming anyone, but I do think the government could have and certainly should have done a better job articulating that right from the get-go. Uh, and and again, Justin Trudeau, I, I think, has been confusing on that too, because here's a guy who is right now in social distancing mode. He, he's no, he no longer needs to isolate, but he's staying in his home and doing his briefings from home, and it sounds like not leaving just because. And there's been a lot of people talking about this in the last week, and I want to say right out of the gate that I, I think the if you've seen it online, I'm, I'm going to address it once and once only. If you haven't seen it, uh, it was a simpler time. I wish I hadn't either. But there is a conspiracy theory circulating. I don't even want to say it because it's so stupid. But a conspiracy theory circulating that Justin Trudeau is not actually in uh, self-isolation as a precaution to protect against uh, coronavirus but that he is actually on house arrest and that if you look really, really closely when he comes out of his front door to do his daily press conferences uh, on his ankle, he's wearing an ankle monitoring bracelet, which, (laughs) okay, I'm sharing this with you for your edification, not because I, I think it's worth sharing, but just because I'm getting tired of people saying, why aren't you talking about this? So I can say it once so that I never have to say it again. But the ankle bracelet jumps around from left to right ankle, depending on the day of the photo, which I find hilarious. And uh, people say that Justin Trudeau is, you know, secretly on health arrest or house arrest. Oh, the health, health arrest. That's what we should call uh, the quarantine now. You're on health arrest, but secretly on house arrest. 
and <laughs> that's why he's staying at home long term. And I no one knows for why. I mean, like, but but here's my thing: is that if we're to believe that uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, was powerful enough to be arrested, charged, uh, convicted, and sentenced uh, around uh, quarantine measures without anyone knowing about it. I'd say he's probably powerful enough that he could have just avoided uh, being arrested in the first place or avoid uh, avoided wearing an ankle monitoring bracelet. But this is the conspiracy circulating about why he is still uh, working from home. I think the reason he is working from home is because it looks good on him when he's telling everyone else to work from home in Canada to be doing his briefings and all of his work from his own house. And look, in the age of technology, I don't think there's anything that he needs to be in the office to do. I mean, I've generally been a firm believer in the fact that if Justin Trudeau were to stay home most of the year, Canada would probably be in a better place. Now, I realize that if someone had, like, cut his internet and he couldn't actually issue executive orders and orders in council and stuff, that would be more apropos. But at this point, I'm not upset that Trudeau is at home. I think that the government is telling Canadians whenever possible work from home. So if the prime minister is modeling that behavior, I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. But I do think that it, it is interesting that he chooses to make it about something far grander. And that's where he kind of loses me on this because he said uh, that he is going to continue to do it from home on the advice of doctors. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense because doctors have said, just stay home for 14 days if you or someone you've been in close contact with has uh, been exposed to symptoms or has been diagnosed. And in his case, it was his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, who tested positive for COVID-19 after a trip from London. And when Trudeau went into isolation, 16 days later, reporters were asking, well, hey, why are you still in isolation? And he says that the couple took steps to remain apart, but staying at home for another two weeks is prudent because he was sharing a roof with someone who was ill. He said, I have to continue in isolation in order to be sure that we're following all the protocols and recommendations by Health Canada, Trudeau said. Now, for Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, she's been given the all-clear on her health, so we're very grateful that she is fine and healthy and has recovered from COVID-19. But Trudeau is making this about something like that's a grand gesture instead of just saying, look, I'm telling Canadians to work from home, so I think it's important that I should work from home as well. If he had just said that instead of making it this convoluted and muddled thing, people wouldn't be going as crazy about it online as they are, I suspect. I mean, you, you might get a little bit of it, but I think for the most part, people would be a little bit more muted in their criticism of him. But when everything comes across as a theatrical performance, that's what you invite. That's what you invite from people. In any case, going to take a quick break. When we come back, more of what's happening in the world on The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. As that old saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. A lot of people trying to be on the cutting edge of a cure or remedy or treatment or vaccine for COVID-19. Many of these efforts will hopefully lead to all of these things. Some of them just lead to embarrassing situations. In particular, as reported in The Guardian, Australian astrophysicist Daniel Reardon ended up in hospital after inserting magnets in his nostrils. 
while attempting to build a necklace that warns you when you touch your face. Now, uh, you can see in the photo here, which he supplied to the Guardian, that he looks a little bit sad or embarrassed, although he sent it in himself, so presumably uh, he was okay with it. Now, Dr. Reardon is a research fellow at a Melbourne university, and he was trying to build a necklace that sounds an alarm on facial contact. And this uh, is coming from his field of study, pulsars and gravitational waves. He says it started as a remedy for boredom, which means that uh, certainly having nostrils uh, that are jammed, packed with magnets probably is a boredom killer, also a dignity killer. But he decided that he, he would just, uh, you know, play around with it and uh, did the opposite. So the... <laughs> This part's great. He said the hope was that if you brought your arm too close to your face or your hand too close to your face, that it would set off an alarm, although it actually did the opposite, where it completed the circuit, uh, which presumably means he was either electrified or just, like, stuck his hand to his face, which would be my luck, because magnets uh, repel and attract, which is one of the uh, few things, or maybe the only thing, come to think of it, that I know about physics, so... I would have loved it because this is like probably the second worst place to have something stuck when you go to the hospital. Yeah, no, it's this, if you're a man, it's the second worst place you can have something stuck uh, in, if you're in the hospital. Because like this is what children do. It's like they go in here and I can just imagine he's like showing up at the ER and they say, yeah, um, you know, I'm here uh, because magnets were stuck in my st stuck in the nose. And the triage nurse says, all right, we'll bring in your, your little son or little daughter. And he said, oh, no, it's, it's me. And they say, oh, wow, you're not very smart, are you? And he said, well, actually, no, I have a PhD in, in astrophysics. And, and then the nurses all of a sudden hold more power in the world than... Uh, oh, wait, I, something's, something is just coming to me. Why can't you just use another magnet to pull it out? <laughs> like, why don't you just, like, find the opposite magnet and then just, like, hold that up there and just, you know, save yourself the dignity? I have to assume that uh, Dr. Astrophysics tried all of these things, but sometimes the simplest solution is the hardest to come by. Which goes back to that whole shutting down borders and shutting down air travel and kicking symptomatic people off of flights thing. So so-called experts take a while sometimes to come around to what normal people could realize right from the get-go here. And on that note, this is where you have to look at just the sheer evil of China on this. And, and we've talked about this since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic. China just... China lied, people died. I mean, those are the four words that I think need to be remembered from 2020 anytime this chapter is studied in years to come. China lied, people died. And this is so true because China has uh, tried to cover up coronavirus from the get-go. China has allowed it to become a global pandemic. China has deliberately obfuscated to protect its own regime's image rather than to protect human lives. And China views its own lives as expendable which has now led to circumstances where everyone else in the world has to start picking and choosing who gets to live and who gets to die. And this is just so heartbreaking. I look at this story in The Telegraph from the United Kingdom, where, if I can pull it up here, the NHS, which is the London or the British hospital system, has now, according to The Telegraph, uh, decided that intensive care is limited only to those, quote, reasonably certain 
unquote, to survive. So ventilator treatment is only available for people that they think will be, in their view, reasonably certain to survive, and everyone other than that doesn't get intensive care. So when things get to this crisis level, care has to be rationed. You look at Ontario and what's happened in Ontario, they've decided to cancel cancer surgeries on people, anything non-essential in their view, something that is not needed imminently in a seven-day period is getting canceled. So for most people, this would suggest that we are living in pretty dark times when all of these things that are supposed to be the hallmarks of Western civilization, great healthcare, access to treatment, great hospitals, all of these things are now turning us into a field hospital from the Korean War when we're having to pick and choose who gets what, who gets care, who gets to live, and who gets treatment. And, and again, I'm not saying that the decisions made are not the right decisions. I'm saying that it's horrific that we need to be making these decisions in wealthy, free, democratic countries that have always, as a point of pride, been able to provide treatment. Everything we hear about public health care is that everyone gets to treat, everyone gets treated, everyone gets care, everyone gets access. And we're starting to see the cracks in that. And we saw it in Italy. We're seeing it in England. We're going to be seeing it in Canada pretty soon to a greater extent even than we are right now. And again, all of this goes back to China, which as its point of pride tends not to care about human life, whether it's the one child policy, whether it's uh, state executions, China does not respect human life. So why should we expect China to respect human life the world over? They don't. Their, their own regime's image has been the only thing they care about. And, you know, Anthony Fury, who is my colleague here at True North, a fantastic columnist with the Toronto Sun, uh, he wrote a column that was just fantastic, I think two weeks ago, about how Canada had recently given 16 tons of medical gear to China. And his question was, well, now that we are the epicenter in the West, are they going to return the favor? And it didn't really go anywhere. The Globe and Mail basically wrote the same story uh, and then did se seem to, at that time, trigger interest and, and even got to the point where China said, all right, we're going to send you all of this gear. And what was fascinating is that the foreign minister in Canada retweeted Chinese propaganda. Minister Champagne retweeted Chinese propaganda as if to say that China was being so magnanimous and gracious by giving us all this medical equipment, uh, d forgetting the fact that China has unleashed this virus on the world by its own negligence, and also that China had been the recipient of all of this medical equipment. And by the way, you can't really take to the bank any medical equipment that China gives you. We've seen stories all around the world about Chinese medical equipment that simply isn't working. Now, Justin Trudeau has said that Canada will inspect to make sure that all the masks provided by China meet the necessary standards for protecting Canadian healthcare workers. But if you look up defective equipment from China, I think Spain in particular had a whole bunch of it here, uh, countries are rejecting it. Countries are, are sending it back. Here's a, a story in the BBC that thousands of testing kits have been found to be below standard or defective, according to authorities in three countries, Spain, Turkey, and the Netherlands. 
Netherlands uh, recalled 600,000 face masks that came from a Chinese manufacturer and had already been distributed. They didn't fit, the filters didn't work, and they even came with a so-called quality certificate. So they've said 600,000 masks that are now completely garbage. They are basically, you should just use them as toilet paper. Uh, Spain had very similar problems with testing kits. Now to outsource something as important as testing to China, I think is a recipe for disaster anyway. But the Spanish embassy said that uh, the company that China allowed to export it didn't even have an official license to sell those sorts of products. And Turkey had found that testing kits from China were not accurate. Some of them worked well, some of them worked didn't. So it's like a dollar store pregnancy test. You just never know. The, the test might as well be a coin and whatever it says. Heads you're infected, tails you're not. And it sounds like that's probably just as effective as the Chinese testing kits. So why are we, as a matter of diplomacy, thanking China for uh, graciously giving us something when we give them good stuff and they send us crap back? Can you think of a, a better metaphor for the world we're living in right now that China unleashes this virus on the world, uh, we send medical gear, they send crap back that even they wouldn't use and couldn't use for themselves, and we're supposed to be so grateful. Oh, thank you, China. Like, this is just so insane that this is the world we are in now, that people are still, in everything that's happening in the last two months, bending over backwards for China, which would not lift a finger to help the world unless it was in China's interest to do so. And we're supposed to all just be so grateful. Unreal. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. So sometimes I inadvertently can predict the future, evidently. Last week I made a joke about Earth Hour and I said, I didn't even know, I didn't even plan to do it. I was just talking and I said something about, oh, Earth Hour is coming up. I guess we won't do it this year because the world's already at a standstill. Little did I know, Justin Trudeau on March 28th, so that was Saturday, tweets, you're already at home tonight, so why not unplug for Earth Hour at 8.30 p.m. local time? Whatever you do tonight, hashtag stay at home and stay safe. So, like, this is beyond parody, that we are already living at a standstill. We have basically turned the lights off on the economy, and Justin Trudeau, sitting at home, apparently alone, says, oh, well, we all got to do Earth Hour. You're at home anyway, so... So why not do it? And look, I don't care, but I think that the world has much bigger fish to fry right now or bats to fry, such as the case may be. And I also don't think that anyone really cares about Earth Hour anymore anyway. Like, I think everyone kind of forgot about it uh, three, four years ago, except Justin Trudeau, who's now just turning the lights off again because he has to make this grand theatrical gesture about everything. But uh, yeah, that, a lot of people were surprised that Earth Hour was still on. And the carbon tax increase is going into effect on, I think it's Wednesday. So many people will just turn the lights off uh, just to save money on their electricity bills. I don't think it has anything to do with the whole Earth Hour message necessarily. It's just self-preservation. But uh, let's talk uh, about the one thing that did happen that we talked about last week, which was the postponement of the conservative leadership race. I wrote a column calling for this. I, I called for it on the show. I was tweeting about it, trying to raise up a bit of attention and momentum. And, and there was a lot of support. I didn't need to work hard because most people, almost everyone except for Peter McKay and Leslin Lewis, who's also running 
in the conservative leadership wanted this race postponed. And the Conservative Party did not do it by March 25th, which was the deadline for getting on the ballot, but they did it the day after. So there was no crisis, no pandemic one day, and then the next day it was, oh yeah, we got to postpone this leadership race and and figure out what the heck we're going to do. And, you know, I tweeted out that I don't think it's easy or even possible to give the Conservative Party of Canada kudos or credit for making the right decision when it comes after, for two weeks, uh, the pandemic, uh, which caused everything else to be cancelled, and the Conservative Party in the midst of that said, ah, well, you know, we're going to go on and we've got a timeline and we're aware, but we're not changing anything. So I can't give them credit for doing it in the most cynical way possible, which was waiting until that ballot cutoff to thin the herd, which, by the way, essentially got Rick Peterson, Rudy Husney, and Marilyn Gladue out of the race. People that you may or may not have liked, you may or may not have voted for, but people that would have made formidable candidates that were campaigning, doing everything right, except they refused to campaign during a pandemic to get signatures and raise money when people were losing their jobs and we were in the midst of a global health crisis. They weren't doing it. So the front runners, the people that had already done it, they were saying, even they were saying, by the way, we've got to postpone this, give it more time. The only one actively saying no was Peter McKay. Leslin Lewis put out a statement, but Peter McKay was like sending out emails every day, literally every day saying, don't postpone the race. We've got a job to do. He had that really obnoxious ad uh, that was like an iPhone ringtone, which I won't play because you'll think that your phone is ringing and you'll answer it and no one will be there and it'll make you sad. And next thing you know, you're shoving magnets up your nose and going to the emergency room. It's a slippery slope in these dark times. But the whole point is that the party has now done it. But in doing so, they have, I think, shown themselves to be very much at odds again with where most people are on this because they still aren't postponing the axiomatic part of the race which is the vote in June they're just suspending campaigns and by suspending campaigns they are making it so that everything is right now just completely frozen until May 1st this is from a party statement there will be a suspension of leadership fundraising the party will not be processing directed donations and verified candidates will be asked and encouraged to refrain from contacting party members until after a decision is taken on May 1st, 2020. So the LEOC, the Leadership Committee, is going to meet again in 2020, uh, in on May 1st, 2020, and at this point, they'll make a decision about what's happening now. But they've cancelled the June convention, they've cancelled the debates that were planned for, I think, April, and they will not allow anyone to raise money, which had to be done through the party portal. So I guess you could take checks, but you couldn't put them in your account. So they have handicapped the ability for anyone to campaign, except for sending out emails, which they have kindly asked you to not do. I got one email from Peter McKay and one email from Aaron O'Toole on that day, on that last day, uh, saying this is the last day to donate. I think Derek Sloan sent one out as well. But I don't think there's been any email sent out since then. We'll certainly be, maybe we need to do like a party email snitch line or something for people following the conservative leadership race. But the point of this is that we are looking at a race that has been frozen, but not canceled. And, and it, it's understandable that there has to still be a race. They need to, at some point, choose a leader. 
I don't think that they need to choose a leader to serve as effective opposition. I think Andrew Scheer did a, a fantastic job last week when the parliament reconvened. I think he can do a, a great job as official opposition leader, even if he will not be the leader heading into the next election. You don't need to be... I mean, look, let's say that right now Peter McKay were to win the conservative leadership race. Let's say it happened today and he wins. There is no greater role that he could play in the House of Commons because he doesn't have a seat in the House of Commons. Leslin Lewis and Peter McKay, they're not in the House of Commons. Derek Sloan and Aaron O'Toole are. So of those, in 50% of outcomes, if we were to give everyone an equal shot, which I know is not necessarily valid, but if, it still would leave us where we are today which is that you need to have someone in the House who's not the party leader that is playing the role of leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. So the whole point of this idea that Peter McKay advanced, that we need to move up the race and we can certainly campaign and, you know, even though COVID's a bad thing, we can all make it work, it just doesn't add up. And by the way, there was a story that came out in the Toronto Star over the weekend that Peter McKay, who had been campaigning from some location where he was doing his phone calls and he was doing his uh, campaign letters and all of this stuff and meeting with staff, Peter McKay has actually been in isolation after his wife and their three kids went on vacation to Mexico March 10th, and they returned March 18th. So when Peter McKay was campaigning actively for the conservative leadership race to happen, because, you know, who cares about this COVID-19 thing? He was doing it while he was literally isolated from his family because of COVID-19. So, I mean, th this takes a special level of dissonance for Peter McKay to say on one hand, oh my goodness, I can't be near my family. I have to stay alone. But then on the other hand, saying, yeah, we can have all these conservative party officials in a room counting ballots. Yeah, we can campaign. We can do fundraisers. We can do all of this. Well, he literally couldn't be in the same room as his wife and children because they had just come back from Mexico. Now, it sounds like they're all fine, and I'm very grateful for that. This is not about wishing ill on anyone. It's about saying that Peter McKay in particular was living proof of why it was imprudent to have people together well, he was saying that we need to implement this leadership process that's going to involve uh, hundreds of people counting ballots, that's going to involve officials meeting, scrutineers in the same room, all of these people. And, and he, of all people, was at that point, at that exact time that he was doing that, aware that it wasn't possible. So again, I don't know how you square that circle or if you do, but that's what was happening with the Peter McKay campaign. So right now, the race is on hold. Uh, the hope that I have is that people will be given an adequate opportunity to campaign whenever the race is officially back on. If they still say, okay, we're going to have the vote anyway, after no one has been able to campaign for four months, there's going to be a, a huge problem. And I think there's going to be an uprising at foot. I mean, alternatively, the party could just scrap it and say, we're going to redo the whole thing and start fresh. I don't think that would work. You know, there was a lot of backlash from people. George Ann Burke, for example, who is a, a great organizer, and she was Marilyn Gladue's campaign manager, I believe, or she had a senior role on Marilyn Gladue's campaign. She was uh, calling out the Conservative Party on Twitter 
when they postponed the race last week, saying, you have completely disgraced our party. Shame on you all. And I don't think that her frustration was that they postponed it. It was what I had said earlier, that they had waited until the field was thinned before doing it. And in waiting, it makes it look like they are either, again, just so out of alignment with where normal Canadians are right now, or that they are, on the other side of it, actually uh, dedicated to a particular outcome, which I hope isn't the case. There are good people on that committee, but they made the wrong call. And when they finally made the right one, it was so late that I don't even think you can award them any points for it. We've got to wrap things up for today's show. My thanks to all of you who listened in. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, my email is andrew at andrewlawton.ca. We'll talk to you in a couple of days or every day with Candace Malcolm in True North Update here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.